Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. And uh, today we've invited a special, or uh, how do you pronounce that? Invited a special guest? You might have to help me with the pronunciation there. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could help you, but I'm not the one that speaks French in this room. Oh, there's our special guest, Lindsay Wardell. <laughs> Lindsay, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. What are we talking about today, Lindsay? Today, we're going to be talking about Vite, which is the, the front-end development tool created by Evan Yu, who is the creator of Vue.js. I wish we had a French speaker on this podcast to help us on how to pronounce that. It would be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I'm still surprised by the, by the pun because I, I thought like, <laughs> oh, he's going to make some joke about, oh, you, we need to hurry up and record this or something like beat beats. <laughs> uh, that that would have worked, but no. That would have been too clever. Invited. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Going for the lowbrow here. <laughs> so uh, what is the proper pronunciation? Yeah, well, uh, Lin Lindsay, before we started recording, you said that you had a you were discussing how to pronounce Vite? Yeah, so I, I was, uh, in, a, in a former time, I was a podcaster on the show Views on View. And when the Vite framework was originally announced and released, we were talking about it and none of us could figure out how it was supposed to be pronounced. I think at the time we were saying Vite because we just couldn't figure it out, but kept going back and forth, Vite, Vite. Should you drop a vowel? Should you drop a consonant? None of us actually know French, and the only French word we know is view, which I assume we're also pronouncing wrong. Yes. <laughs> so we just kind of gave up, and um, the, the Vite documentation says Vite at this point, and that's how Evan Yu pronounces it. But I, I just assume that we're all wrong. Well, for Vite, it's not too bad. So the, the proper pronunciation is Vite. So it's pretty much just the same, but the... E is shorter, Vit. Mm -hmm. And view is vu. So that's pretty wrong, mm. I'd say. That's pretty wrong, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if uh, it's just payback, because Evan, you is a native Chinese speaker, right? And he's like, all right, you're making <laughs> me write all this code in English. Now I'm going to make all you English speakers try to poorly pronounce <laughs> French words. <laughs> I always assumed it was kind of like to make it sound like his name, Evan Yu, Ev Yu. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah. Maybe. I, like I, I, th I think the original inspiration was he was just trying to find words that described a view layer, uh, and he ended yeah. up on that one, and it was available on NPM. So yeah. at, at this point, the entire view ecosystem is just named after French stuff. That's clever. <laughs> and it's three letters. Three letters is, are good for uh, file extensions. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Aren't you supposed to say Vue.js every time, or do people just say Vue? I just say Vue. Okay. Uh, I, th I think if you're in the know, you can say Vue, but if you use React or Svelte or something, you need to say Vue.js just to be specific. You mean if you're in the React.js ecosystem? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but don't say AngularJS, because that's another thing. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> you know, it, thinking about it, and this is off topic from Vue, but uh, you did work on AngularJS. And that's part of where the inspiration for Vue came from. So maybe that's part of why Vue is originally Vue.js. Hmm. Uh, and it's since shifted. I don't know. Wait, it's not Vue.js anymore? I mean, if you go to the, the docs, uh, let me pull it up right now. Vue.js. Vue.js, the progressive JavaScript framework and guide. Yeah, it just says, what is Vue? Okay. So, and it's, it's got a pronunciation guide. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I, I, I don't mind if you pronounce it Viet. I think it's close enough. Like, I, w- I will forgive you if you, if you do so. Thank you. <laughs> so, so what is Vue? Uh, sorry, what is Viet? We, uh, we're not, <laughs> not going to talk about Vue on this podcast more, more than we need to, uh, because that's not what we're here to talk about. What, uh, what is Viet? So Viet is front-end tooling is how they build it on their site. Um, and I've actually had a hard time coming up with like a one sentence definition that fits into the the normal boxes because what it gives you is first a development environment. So as you're, as you're working in your code, it spins up the dev server, you're able to import your code. It does some, uh, some processing as needed, uh, especially if you're writing Elm code. And then when you go to build, it uses a build process, but it's a completely different build process than what it's using during development. So you could compare it to a bundler, but it's not quite a bundler. And you could compare it to other other systems development environments, but it's not just a development environment. It kind of fits into all of these different sections, uh, kind of like the cracks, especially when you're you're working in JavaScript, but other languages as well. Uh, it fits into the cracks where things aren't as good and makes them much better. Gotcha. Okay, that, that's why I'm having so much trouble figuring out like what is it actually doing? Like, is it a bundler? Is it or is it this other thing? Okay, it's uh, it's in between. Gotcha. Yeah, and actually, Veed itself is not uh, like it, it's not a custom bundler. It's using two different bundlers under the hood for for doing its job. So during development, primarily, it's using Rollup for all of your your code. If it needs to do any pre-processing, it'll use ES builds on like uh, dependencies. Mm-hmm. But for any of the code that you write yourself, it's using Rollup and compiling your code into ES modules so that it can just run natively in your browser without having to be bundled into a single JavaScript file. And then when you're ready to go to production, it will pu- push everything through ES build and create a single bundle at the end of the day. So Veed itself is not... Veed itself is not a custom bundler. It's just using other bundlers and, and putting it together in a unique way. And what are ES modules and ES build? So ES build is a tool written in Go for compiling JavaScript. I don't have the specific details in front of me, but I've been told it's very fast. It, it's, it's one of the up and coming ones. I don't think it's reached a 1.0, but that's not something unfamiliar to us. <laughs> fair, fair. So that's what ESBuild is. It's, it is specifically a bundler. And the other bundler that's used is Rollup. Rollup, or I guess you could say Rollup.js, uh, was created by Rich Harris of Svelte. And it's going off in its own direction at this point. I don't think he's as involved as it used, as it used to be. But that's, that's what's used during the development experience. I find it helpful to compare Vite to Webpack because like, if you just try to define it, it's kind of like, is it a dev server? Is it a bundler? Like, what is it? But if you, if you think about Webpack, like I imagine many of our listeners have used Webpack and you try to just set up Webpack, you configure Webpack, you write a bunch of config files, you install a bunch of plugins, and then you, um, and then if you're trying to bundle everything, you run a, the bundle command, but then what if you want to run a dev server? Then like, there's kind of like, maybe another package or plugin you install that helps you get a dev server, but things kind of run differently. So like when you compare Vite to that history, like I feel like one of the, one of the main problems that Vite solves in contrast to Webpack is it, 
it gives you an environment where you can run a dev server or you can run a build and it uses kind of the same setup. It, it will mini do more minification and things like that for the production build than it does in the dev server, but you can sort of use your same setup. Um, and there's like less configuration to write compared to Webpack. That sounds accurate to me. The The thought that I have looking at it is in, in the Elm ecosystem, we talk about JavaScript fatigue a lot when we're talking about JavaScript. So if you're, if you're building a React application, you need React, and then you need Redux, and then you need something else. And if you want immutable data, you need something else. And if you want a linter, you need, and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Elm, it's just Elm. And Veep kind of feels the same while remaining a JavaScript thing. If you're needing to build an application, you're going to need a bundler. You're going to need a dev server. You're going to need the ability to watch files and do hot module reload, ideally. And that's all very complicated. And we can see how complicated it is in JavaScript because of things like Create React App. Or in Vue 2.0, they had the Vue CLI, which also used Webpack. So Vite is geared towards solving that problem, where you have the dev server, you have the bundler, you have everything that you need just kind of built into one tool. And, do, and doesn't it sort of pick up things about your config? For example, like... If you want to do, um, if you want to import TypeScript files, then you don't need any special setup because ES Build automatically can transpile TypeScript files, and it's built on top of ES Build. But so it will like use your TS config, and and it uses sort of various configuration files and these standard conventions to run the bundling. Is that right? That's correct. TypeScript is supported out of the box. Other things are supported out of the box, such as WebAssembly. You can just import a WebAssembly file and start it up in your application, and it works fine. Um, you don't get hot module reload on WebAssembly, obviously, but you, you can import the WebAssembly file directly. On TypeScript, though, one of the interesting notes is because of how Vite is handling it and passing the, the TypeScript file to ESBuild for the compilation step, it's not doing any actual type checking in your TypeScript. It's just performing the transpilation so if you're wanting the the lovely type checking that we're used to, you need to set that up in your IDE. Okay. Or yeah, use a different terminal to to run the TypeScript checker. Yep. Huh. So I'm still confused as to why it's using two different bundlers, uh, one in production and one in development mode. Is it because ESBuild is only meant for production builds and Rollup is meant for both, but it's not as good in, in production or something like that? The main reason that Vite is using two different bundlers at the moment is because ESBuild is still under development. It hasn't reached 1.0. So while it's very fast, it can't handle everything at the, the best efficiency. So for the time being, Vite is using Rollup and ESBuild for, for two different parts of the, the experience. The long-term plan is to settle on just one, and that's probably going to end up being ESBuild because of its speed. But for the time being, they're still having to use the two. There's also, there's also the nice benefit with that of the having the plugin ecosystem that incorporates Vite-specific features, but also the roll-up plugins. So if you want to use a roll-up plugin in Vite, you can just import it and use it as normal. You don't have to worry about, does the, is this compatible? Because it, it just is. But only in development mode. It will still work in production. The, oh. I cannot speak to how it does that magic, but I know it does. Oh, interesting. So that's interesting because I, I usually associate, I, I imagine many people do associate ES build with being like a 
JS and TypeScript transpiler, but I but I guess I I have seen in the docs things about like CSS files. So I guess it is a general purpose bundler as well. That's interesting. ES build. Yes, I believe that is the long term goal. Um, I'm not a hundred. I'm I'm not a hundred percent on that. I I write applications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess also like it it seems like a a real trend I'm seeing these days in, in the JS ecosystem is trying to come up with a set of agreed upon standards uh, rather than just everything having bespoke approaches to things. So like, like rollup plugins have like a specific format and Veet said, okay, well, there's this sort of plugin API and let's just use that same API and if we're using that same convention, then we can run it for the production build and for the dev server. And and everything can like play nicer together because they're using the same conventions. Yeah. One of the, the big pushes was not having to worry about a development configuration and a production configuration. And one of the other niceties was there there's a project called VTest, which is just going to throw the French out the window again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not even a French word at all. So it's not. It's it, just not. Means you have, it just means you have to pronounce the first bit wrong. It might be a double entendre, though, which is not a French idiom. I think. Oh. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but Vtest is is intended as a replacement for something like Jest. So instead of having to do all of your testing in Webpack and have a separate configuration for your tests from then the application. You can just use your global Vite configuration, write your tests, and ev- everything just works. I saw the name a few times before, Vtest, but I never understood that it was a test framework. I just thought it was, well, Vite means fast, so Vtest is fastest. So it's something to make things faster again or something. Okay, it's a test framework. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and it, that was created by Anthony Fu, who is on the core team for Vite. He's he's been extremely prolific in creating tooling around Vue and Vite. So definitely, if you're interested in this ecosystem, I would suggest checking him out. Yeah, it's been extremely active. It's I mean, Vite is just such a well-supported tool these days. I know like Turbo Pack was recently announced, and then there were some somewhat controversial figures that were given. I know Evan Yu had some things to say about the methods for coming up with these benchmark comparisons between Turbo Pack. And Vite, but it's just like Vite is so well maintained that like I'm not ready to jump onto a new train at this point. Like Vite seems great, and it seems like an agreed upon standard, and it uses these standard conventions, and so I'm all on board for Vite personally. Yeah, have you tried it on a few projects? Then I use it internally for Elm Pages for the for the V3 uh, beta. I'm using it. There's an SSR mode where that uh, sort of tooling authors can use to serve up pages. So so yeah, Elm Pages V3 comes completely with a built-in Vite server. So so you can use it to have SCSS files or tail tailwind configuration or import TypeScript code into your kind of entry point JavaScript file in your Elm Pages project, and it all just works out of the box. And and so like. Back in uh, Elm Pages V2, I became like somewhat disillusioned by the whole Webpack world because, like, some tools, some sort of like uh, front end frameworks 
like Gatsby and things like that would would expose ways to create to add your own Webpack plugins so you could sort of hook into to the Webpack internals. And that just felt like such a, a weird inversion where you can like mess up internals in a way that could actually like break the framework. And that that didn't feel right. And then it felt like there there are so many possible configurations people could build. And I just I I just came to this conclusion. I'm like, Elm Pages is going to focus on just compiling your Elm code and setting up everything and just focusing on that. And if you want SCSS files, if you want to import TypeScript files, there's a TypeScript compiler that turns that into JavaScript. There's an SCSS compiler that turns that into CSS files. And Elm Pages doesn't care how you get your CSS and JavaScript files to it, but that's the only thing it understands. So it's like, I called it like a bring your own bundler philosophy. But Vite completely changed my perspective on that because it came with this sort of standards-based approach where it's like, if you have a, an SCSS file and you have the thing you need to compile SCSS installed, you don't need to configure it to explain it to explain how to transpile SCSS files, because that's a standard. You just include an SCSS file in your index.html and it figures that out. Or you include a .ts file in your script in, uh, in your index.html file and it, and it knows what to do with that. And so it completely changed my perspective on that. And, and I integrated Vite in on pages V3 and it's, it's been great. The front end ecosystem in general. I'm really excited to hear how it's in Elm Pages v3, and I'm looking forward to trying it more myself. But Vite is being used by Vue, by Svelte, by Solid, by Astro. I think there's some integrations for things like Eleven D as well. So there's there's a lot of projects that are now using Vite and adopting it in the background, and bringing together this whole ecosystem so that everyone's on the same basic tooling from the start, and then you just add the the framework and libraries on top of it that you want. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air, especially like, you know, Yurun and I have talked about this world where you have like, everybody has a custom Babel configuration that gives them like slightly different JS syntax. And then you've got JSX and TSX and then variants on that and all these things. And it's just like, can we just agree like, what the basic syntax is and just like not mess with that. So we can like, so all the tooling can just um, not need all this customization to just tell it like what syntax is and how things work. And it just feels like we're, the pendulum is swinging back there. We got, things got a little bit out of hand and now we're like, let's, (laughs) let's just kind of take a more conventional approach. Yeah. I imagine it's also because the JavaScript community is less intent on shipping new things. Like it, they're not building a new JSX, JSX as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, well, people yeah. are using JSX. Okay, let's include it. People are using TypeScript. Let's include it. People are using SCSS. Let's include it. In that way, you, you have a standard because that's what people use. And um, there's, there are new versions of JavaScript coming on uh, every year. So let's just add support for them whenever they, they arrive and that's it. So that, that does make things a lot easier, yeah. And in, in the Elm ecosystem, like we've had this for a long time because Elm 019 has been released a few years ago and not much has changed since then. So for us, it's very stable as well, but for very different reasons. 
this is also the point where I'll admit I've only used Elm 0.19. I started in the Elm ecosystem right after it released, so I, I have not yet seen the uh, the pain of having to transfer between versions. Yes, same here. I, I, I think I started looking at it in 06 for 016 or 017. Yeah, 016, uh, when there were still signals. Uh, but when I started doing it professionally, 019 was released like a month before. And I mean, hasn't changed since. One other piece that we haven't touched on, and I realized, Dylan, you asked the question, I forgot to answer it, ESM, which is a huge piece of what makes the Vite development experience so lovely. Um, and as I'm describing this, I'm going to be describing it from a JavaScript perspective primarily, because that's where you see the biggest benefit. But this also helps with Elm development as well. So during development using Vite, all of the all of the scripts, all of the code, everything is just compiled into standard native ES modules. ES in this case being ECMAScript. You mean that even things that use CommonJS or other formats that you use like require, they get compiled to use import and export syntax? Yes. Ooh, good job. So during the development process, everything is in ESM, uh, ES modules, mm -hmm. rather than the experience that we've had with Webpack, for example, of you have to wait for all of the code to compile before you can even start, your, start up your application in the browser. I had an experience at a previous job on a Vue application that used Webpack. Start the application, go and get a snack, come back. It's done, it's ready. Now I can finally get to work. And depending on the file that you change, all of that would have to happen again. So with Vite, because everything is ES module, it's all, A, everything, every single file, if you make a change, that only that file is replaced in the browser. The browser is acting as the bundler because you're just sending all of the, the code to it and it's loading things using the native syntax. Hmm. The, the other benefit to that is if you're on a page and only some of the code is getting loaded on that particular page, Vite won't bother compiling the rest of it for the time. It will only load the route that you're using and it will only load the code that you're using. Right, and, and when you're talking about native imports, well, we should clarify that common JS imports are something that bundlers know how to like pack up into like a bundled asset, but browsers have no idea what require means. If you If you see require in the browser, it just explodes and says, I don't know what that is. Yep. But if you say import. CommonJS is a remnant from the early days of Node where mm -hmm. everyone said, well, we need a way to bundle things and we need modules. And so between the front end needing something like that and the back end needing something like that, the pseudo standard that was developed was CommonJS. But when the TC39 was working on how do we how do we actually standardize this? There there is a community standard right now. They felt that going with require and going with the common JS syntax was not what best served the JavaScript ecosystem, and so they went with the import syntax that is more modern. We are more familiar with today. So that is what is used in the browser by default. And you could actually do this without a bundler as well. If you if you wanted to create a section of your code that used ES modules in the browser, no compiler necessary. You would just have to set the script type to module. And suddenly you can import things and you could export things if you really wanted to. And everything would work as you're used to when you're using a compiled language that uses that same syntax. You said you need to change the script type in package.json? No, just in the 
so if you have an index.html file and mm -hmm. you wanted to import JavaScript as a module, oh. you could just create a script tag and say script type module. Gotcha. Yep. And okay. then you can use your import syntax and use that as you would if you were using a bundler. All right. It's a little different, right? Like if it's a script type module, can you not do things in the top level? Everything has to be like, you can export things, but you can't just have top level code. Am I understanding that correctly? I believe there are some restrictions. I don't remember exactly which ones they are. Okay. But it's supposed to be better for tree shaking and things like that, right? Like for static analysis purposes, there are some benefits to ESM standards. There are, if you're using a bundler, yes. The, right. the difficulty with ESM, even today as, it is, as a standard, is that if you're using ESM, ESM in production, there will be a waterfall of HTTP requests. Totally. So yeah. if you have a large single page application, you're going to fire off JavaScript request after JavaScript request until the whole thing is loaded that you need. And that's not really ideal even today. Wasn't that what HTTP 2 was meant for? Solving that kind of issues? I think the, the main problem is that if you load up your index.html file and it references a single JavaScript file, you fetch that file, but then it's going to reference other files. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not that you can't do the requests in parallel, it's that it doesn't know what requests to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there there do exist plugins that like hoist uh, module preload directives to to figure out what that waterfall is going to have, and then add preload directives to to tell you. But but yeah, generally people just in the production build just turn everything into a single bundled asset instead of or or well not necessarily a single one, but they uh, they chunk the assets rather than just having everything be ESM imports. So if somebody wants to try using Vite with Elm, like what is the what is the minimal thing they can do to that to get started with that? And what's the simplest way they can get started with that? So if if someone wanted to take Vite and just run, for example, npm create Vite, set up a new project, whether they're using a fr another JavaScript framework or just vanilla JavaScript, the first step that would need to be done is install the, the Elm plugin. Uh, and that plugin is just called Vite Plugin Elm. And it is lovely. I've been using it for some time on my own projects. I'm sure you're familiar with it as well, Dylan. And then in your Vite config, there's a vite.config.js file. And you have two, as a, as a bare minimum, you need two imports. One is import define config from Vite. And that gives you the, the configuration file and also gives you uh, TypeScript typing, which is helpful. As you are as you're working in that file, so you don't need to be constantly referencing the documentation, uh, and then you need to import the plugin itself. And then, as far as the configuration goes, the the way the file is structured, you just say export default define config, which is a function takes an object, and as a key you say plugins, which takes an array, and then you invoke the Elm plugin as a function inside of that array, and you're done. That's all you need to do to integrate Elm into a Vite application. From there, you, of course, need to run Elm init, create your Elm file, and import it into the JavaScript. But you can import it as if it were JavaScript at that point. You can just import Elm from main.elm and uh, instantiate your application as you normally would. So that, that would be the, the bare minimum to get Elm working inside of V. What I would recommend as a simple way to do that instead is, this is a shameless plug, by the way, mm -hmm, is do it. I, I have a template for creating Vite applications using Elm. 
that includes nice tooling such as Elm test and Elm review and, and some example code <laughs> to go with that as well. So that would be my recommendation. And that is just called Vite template Elm. And you can find that on GitHub, Lindsay K Wardell slash Vite Elm template. Sorry, I said Vite template Elm and it's Vite Elm template. I'm good at knowing what my own things are called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. What we tend to do is just name things the easiest way. The only question is like, which order is it like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could have said template Elm Vite and that would be terribly wrong, but would still get it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got to be Vite first. And I think I went with Elm second because that's the language. I don't know. But yeah, so that, that would be the simplest way to get started. So you get the hot module reload, which actually works with Elm as well. It's lovely. I really appreciate it. You also get the integration with Vite static asset handling because Vite not only can handle TypeScript and JavaScript and WebAssembly and CSS, but you can also import images straight into it. And there's a nice little plugin. Uh, it's an Elm package that will prefix things properly so that Elm code gets compiled to JavaScript code that actually handles the assets in a way that Vite likes. You could do it manually, it's just a string, but it's nice to have something a little stronger. The tooling is all installed via Elm tooling, so you can spin things up in your CI/CD. So you get Elm, Elm format, Elm JSON, Elm test. You get Elm review and unit test examples, and there's a GitHub Actions CI for running tests, just as an example. So that's that's what the template includes. It's not intended to be like, this is the best solution, but this is a simple solution that shows everything you would need. Yeah, it's pretty exciting how like how little boilerplate there is for getting started with something that is like not, not a cute tool that sort of gets you started and then you outgrow. It's like a, it's like a very simple setup that gets you up and running quickly. But then it's like the tool that everybody uses now that has a ton of support and can do whatever you grow into doing later. So that is a, that is a breath of fresh air for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, Webpack also did that, but you had to configure it a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, my inspiration for this template was actually using the create Elm app, which is built on Webpack. Mm. I had an application written in that and I kept running into situations where I felt like I needed to eject and then handle the Webpack config myself. And I just really didn't want to. So when when the plugin came out that supported Elm and Vite, I immediately ported the application over <laughs> and then backtracked to a template that I could reuse in future applications. Yeah. Do, do you also have the concept of ejecting uh, in your template? There, there is nothing to eject. The, okay. the nice thing about Vite is everything is self-contained, but if you need to override something, it's very easy to do so. Uh, and that philosophy carried over from Vue.js as well, where you had you had a config. Yes, it used Webpack, but you didn't need to worry about ejecting. You just extended it with your own stuff. Yeah. For, for those who don't know, uh, ejecting is when you use like create Elm app or create React app, you run commands through the that CLI, like create Elm app, create Elm app, run, create Elm app, start or whatever. But then whenever you did something too custom, uh, you would have to opt out of using create React app, create Elm app. And you're on at that point you have to eject and you're on your own, right? And I found that always very scary. Like, oh, what if I do if I want to do something custom? Oh, now I have to eject. Oh, now there are so many things that, I, that were handled for me automatically that are not anymore. So I'm I'm really happy that you are not you don't have that concept. It's just like these are the scripts and you do whatever you want and they're all simple. Yeah. 
that's really nice. And and if you want to extend it with a JavaScript framework like Vue or Svelte or Solid or React or something, it's really easy to do so because it is just using V. I, I have the opposite problem, Dylan, where I, I want people to have all the foot guns. <laughs> because I don't I don't want to lock it down. I want people to play with it and explore and and feel comfortable with Elm interacting with the tooling that they already have. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing is like all these uh, create React app, create Elm app, they were addressing a real need, a real pain point at the time, which was that Webpack was this, you know, very verbose configuration that like you, you go and copy paste these like very complicated setups just to like tell it you want like raw imports for CSS or you want like you want it to transpile Elm and things would break frequently. And you're just like, I just, I just want to like import an Elm file. I just want to import SCSS. Like, can I just do that? And it's like, yeah, well, here's this configuration, but there's this one thing that's kind of broken in it. And it, it made things more customizable than they needed to be. And so it gave you an overly general purpose way of configuring things, which most of the time isn't what people want. They just want to use SCSS. That's, that's all. They just want to import Elm. That's all. And so now... I, I don't know if you can tell that Dylan had horror stories about Webpack. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, Elm, Elm Pages V2 was built as a Webpack plugin. So I have horror stories. It was painful. It was very painful. Writing custom Webpack plugins was very sparsely documented and error-prone and difficult to debug. It was pro- like, honestly, probably the hardest technical accomplishment of my career was getting that thing working. It was, and, and I'm not proud of that. It just was. <laughs> but so like create React app and create LMAP were addressing a real pain point, which is just, you needed a simpler abstraction for how to configure a basic LMAP or a basic React app, and then eject was, well, let's address the problem that you might outgrow that and need to do something more custom. But if you don't, then we can hide some of that complexity from you. But now with Vite, it's like, well, there's really not that much complexity to hide. You just use the Elm plugin, and now you can import Elm. Like, we don't need to create a wrapper tool that abstracts the complexity of the basic setup for that for you. So, man, I think it's a pretty good time in in the in the web ecosystem. I I would say I think we've really gotten some nice nice tools. So, yeah, are there any other kinds of assets that that Vite can process that you enjoy using, Lindsay, when you're when you're working with Vite? Primarily, what I've used has been CSS, TypeScript, and images. So I haven't dug in a ton to all of the flexibility that it offers there. I did play around a bit with WebAssembly and compiling Rust and running that inside of Vite. That was really fun. I don't know Rust well enough to make use of it, but I did some simple addition and called it in JavaScript. So that made me happy. One of the other features, though, that I really like that ties into this use of standards is using web workers inside of Vite. So I, when, when, you, when you instantiate a web worker, there's the web standard way of doing it. And... Vite just supports that standard. So if you want to instantiate a web worker, you just call it the exact same way. Or there's a there's a special syntax as well that, 
they offer uh, from a previous version of Eat, but it's no longer the recommended way. So you could you could call new worker just like you would if you were in a standard JavaScript file, reference the URL for your your worker JavaScript, or you can import worker from worker and then append it with a query parameter of worker. And you want to give people a, a short introduction to what a web worker is? Absolutely. Web workers are, if you have a long running or high calculation task in JavaScript or just the front end in general, and you need to run that, typically if you're just doing it in the main application, you're going to cause issues with the, the browser. Example of this can be CSS not updating properly. If somebody moves their mouse and the hover animation doesn't change, that could be what's happening. The The goal of a web worker is to get it off of the main thread and into its own subsection of the browser. And then you can pass messages to and from the web worker just via JavaScript. So for example, on my blog, I wrote a, a blog post about this where you could have two Elm applications, one being the view layer and one being the web worker. And these two Elm applications are just communicating via this messaging protocol and then passing the messages into their ports. So it becomes an effective way to have two Elm applications talk to each other if you need to do complex calculations inside of Elm. Yeah, Elm's architecture is actually like very interesting for this because of the way it um, separates the sort of DOM mutation and because of the whole DOM virtual DOM diffing and everything. It conceptually you can really separate like the state part of it from the DOM updating part of it, which is basically what, like web workers can't touch the DOM, but they can run code. And it's a, it's a good kind of way to split things up. Yeah, and the fact that Elm has platform.worker that doesn't require looking at the DOM, so you can just render that in a headless environment, such as a worker or in Node. But you can you can use that to instantiate an Elm application that can then just communicate via ports takes an input and that's that's all of the inputs to its update function. Yeah, I think this th this could definitely be a really interesting uh thing to to experiment with. Like I could imagine at a framework level abstracting this away, especially because like I think um there there's like a clear segregation between the processes, so you have to like use array buffers to send messages back and forth, right? Which is a little bit awkward, but uh or can you send json as well maybe? I believe you can just send JSON. You can send uh, JSON too, yeah. One of my side projects in Elm is a turn-based strategy game, and I'm using a web worker to do the AI calculations. Nice. So I just send the game state over as JSON. It's very so cool. So from Elm to Elm again? Yes. Because it's too slow to, to have it in the Elm main thread? Yep. The The problem I was having in, in the game context, in a late stage of the game, there were a lot of pieces on the board, there was a lot of options available to the computer, and it would have to cycle through all of the cells, all of the units, all of the combinations of units, and make a decision on what to do. And when it was doing that in the main thread, all of the CSS would stop working. So if you tried to do anything, or even just open the menu and say, I'm done playing, get me out of here, you couldn't do that. So I, I, I switched that all to being sent via JSON to a web worker, and then just decoding it back into Elm, performing the calculation, and then shipping it back. So it can still take time because it's having to do all those calculations, but it's not blocking the CSS anymore. Mm -hmm. That would be really interesting if there was some abstraction where you could basically say, like, here's a message to send back when this long-running computation is done on a web worker thread. 
and then you could you could say I'm awaiting the AI response for this, uh, and I'm not gonna I'm gonna show this as loading until I get that message and update my model, having gotten the computation from from the AI's prediction or whatever. Could be really interesting. So so Vite, why does why do we need a special syntax for importing something as a web worker with Vite? How does it help us with that? I believe the original problem was how Vite was doing its compilation to ES modules. The worker syntax was just not playing nicely with with how the bundling was happening under the hood. So the the version I was working with at the time, I believe, was Vite 2. Vite 4.0 has now released. And looking at the docs, they now support the standard new worker syntax. And when you were talking about this uh, importing this WebAssembly Rust, was Vite actually running the Rust compilation step for you? Or was it importing WASM that you had compiled from Rust? There is a plugin for Vite that will compile WASM. However, it's it still has to be a separate step from from running the Vite dev server. But you are you are using the Vite config at that point. You're using the the standard tooling that you're using for the rest of your application. You just need to compile that first, then start your dev server. So when I was playing with it, I had a separate step before actually instantiating the Vite dev server. But I could just run npm run dev, and I didn't have to think about it. I don't understand. How come you need to have a separate step for that? It may have changed, but the last time I looked, the the WASM file isn't actually generated until you do the compilation. Otherwise, you're just writing Rust files and you're you're in the Rust environment. So when you're you're compiling Rust, you need to say I'm targeting WebAssembly, and that's what generates the WASM file for you to import inside of Vite. Mm-hmm. I thought that the way that Vite worked is. You have uh, an index.html file, and you, you have a bunch of imports. And if you import something like something.wasm, then it figures out, okay, I know this file, and it comes from this step. Or is that the problem? It doesn't know where, uh, which task makes it. I believe if you updated the wasm file, it would work fine. The, the setup that I was using had it as part of the spinning up the dev environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I... I th- I don't think it would be hot reload in that sense because WebAssembly can't do that, I believe. But you do get the benefit of if you do a refresh, then it's there. Right. Okay. I wonder if you would be able to set up like a, a Vite plugin to uh, to say when I import a Rust file, compile it to WASM and then import that. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that there is hot reloads even for Elm. So um, can you explain what it does exactly and how how well it uh, hot reloads? Sure. So for people less familiar, hot module reload is if you are working, I'm going to use JavaScript as an example. If you're working in a JavaScript application and you have three different files that you're working in and you change one of them, hot module reload first will grab that new code that you've written, load it into the browser but also execute that and make the change. So if you're using if you're if you're changing what the UI should look like, it will make that change for you. If you're changing the logic of a function, it will make that change for you. It will it will replace the code and you don't have to re- refresh your entire page. I feel very spoiled by this feature whenever it's available. <laughs> yeah, I, I've tried working with other frameworks that don't have it and it makes me very sad. So where it comes in handy in Elm is the same. If you're working in an Elm application and you just change the logic of a function, 
Elm will hot reload and just replace the logic of the function. The downside where it, Elm, where it comes to Elm is if you're modifying functions in the same file where you define what your model is or where the, the core of your application is, it will hot reload that whole thing. So if you are working in a an Elm application with a single file and you make a change, it will reload the entire it will reload the entire file. So your entire application will initialize again. So if you are breaking your Elm application down into separate files where you've got a file per type, for example, and that type has certain functions, and you make the changes to the file of that type, that file will reload. Your code will continue to run. Your model will still be there. Everything will be in the state that it was. But now the new functions will be available that you just wrote. So it works with Elm. And I, I still highly appreciate not having to hit the refresh button on my page myself. But there are some gotchas because of how Elm works and where the, the model is stored. Right, yeah. I think I remember uh, Simon Nadell talking uh, on his episode for Elm Watch about techniques he made to improve that. Um, but yeah, this is, this sounds pretty hard to, to do. Like if your model changes, for instance, then you have to re refresh the whole page anyway. Although now that you mention it, I do remember at one point changing my model referencing the key and seeing a null appear on screen, which was very weird. Yep, that's uh, not wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I find most of the time the reason I want hot module reloading is if I'm like tweaking a view, I don't want to have to like keep finding the state I was in that shows that view. But if I'm like changing my model and the way that messages are flowing through the system, then I'm fine just refreshing and starting that process over like it, you know, so it usually works pretty well. Yeah, I've been pretty happy with how the the hot reloading works in Elm. Similar experience. It helps a lot more when you're working on the UI layer. But again, just not having to think as much about, am I looking at the correct version of my application? Did it refresh? Did I refresh the page? It helps a lot just with the the process of building an application so you can work look at your code write the changes switch back to the browser and because of how fast vite is typically it's already done by the time you get back you're not alt tabbing fast enough that's it i i need to get i need to work on my alt tab game that's that's what i need to do why might someone consider alternatives to vite i don't uh maybe maybe you're all in on vite uh but i'm curious like do you think there's a are use cases where someone would want to not use Vite with Elm? That's a good question. I don't. So I, I will fully admit I am all in on Vite. Uh, I came from the Vue ecosystem. Evan, you created this. I really appreciate his work, and I just kind of stick with it. Uh, the fact that the rest of the JavaScript ecosystem has gone in this direction as well gives me added comfort in that. That said, I think it's perfectly reasonable to take a different course if that is what feels more comfortable. And I think that's what it comes down to is comfort. So for example, there's Parcel, which you don't even have to use a plugin to, to get Elm working. Elm just works. Mm -hmm. There's tools like ESBuild or please don't use Webpack, but there's Webpack too. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to go in that other direction and not down this path, I... I I think there's some some kinds of developers that really prefer that configuration of all the nitty gritty over having something that's pre-configured that they can update. The, the other big one is if 
you want to use ESBuild and you don't want all the other benefits of Vite, you could just use ESBuild, for example. I know plenty of projects and companies that are doing just that if they want to use Vite for whether it's Elm or not. ESBuild is a is a wonderful tool on its own. It's still in development, but it's pretty good. So if you didn't want all the extra goodies that come with Vite, they don't benefit you for whatever reason. It's perfectly reasonable to just go with something more lower level and just get a bundler. I think those would be the main reasons I would go with something else. Yeah, the, the only one that I knew about and used sometimes was Parcel. Parcel. But just because it worked uh, without any configuration or so. And the old, the alternative at the time was Webpack. So like, there's one that works without configuration and the other one that doesn't work with a lot of configuration. So the choice was quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell what the difference is between Vite and Parcel. So. And I, I think in many ways that's a good thing because... If they do the same thing, yeah. They do pretty much the same thing for what you need. And so it comes down to a preference, which one feels more comfortable to use. I think for me, the big reason I lean towards Vite besides I came from the Vue ecosystem is I'm jumping between other frameworks a lot of the time for other side projects. And being able to, for example, in a Nuxt application, Nuxt.js, uh, it's a server-side rendering framework for Vue, I can, because it's using Vite, I can just import the Elm plugin. And now I have the power of Nuxt on the back end and the components if I really want to. And then for anything that feels like it should be an Elm, I can just render that in Elm instead. And I can just mix and match a whole lot easier. And similarly, going the other direction, if, I am, if I'm a Vue developer or I'm a React developer and I want to try out Elm, be, or I want to try out Svelte, or I want to try out whatever, but we're an Elm podcast. If you want to try out something else and you're using Vite already, it's as simple as just getting started. If you're using Elm, just plug it in. If you're using, if you're wanting to use Vue, just plug it in. And then you can start using that thing, whatever it is. And the fact that so much of the ecosystem is already built on that. You've got Nuxt, you've got Astro, you've got SvelteKit, Solid Start. There's just so much that's built into that. I really like the ability to jump between the different tools and the different frameworks and the different applications. And it's all the same configuration underneath. And I know what I'm getting into. So that's when when I'm evaluating a new project such as Elm Pages V3, uh, I'm looking to see what is it using under the hood and, oh, it's Vite. Awesome. I'm probably going to use this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was adding something to the, to the docs site for Elm Pages for um, basically like I think I even saw some like GDPR thing about some litigation because people were loading Google fonts directly and it was like violating people's privacy because it was unnecessarily pinging Google servers when people loaded a page just to load a font. And I'm like, wow, that's that's been like this standard way I do things, just load a Google font. And for a long time, people said, well, it's a good practice because you cache the font. So if somebody else has loaded it with Google Fonts, it will be in their cache. But actually that no longer happens on browsers because they realized that that was like a fingerprinting vector that could let people identify a user based on which assets had been cached on their site. So caches are sandboxed by domain. And so you no longer have even that benefit. Plus, uh, when you have to connect to another domain, you have to do the whole handshake and open up that connection to another domain. So it's faster if you load the asset from the, the site that it's being hosted at. 
And so how do you, how do, you do that? Install a single Veep plugin, tell it the Google fonts you have, and then it just knows how to do it. And it's so easy. And I can do that now in the Elm Pages doc site, which of course, uh, if, it, if it was not written in Elm Pages, that would be embarrassing. It's written in Elm Pages. But I just open up the Veep config and then add that plugin to, for downloading Google fonts. And it's so easy to use. So it's pretty cool being able to hook into this like vibrant ecosystem, which like everybody has decided is a good idea right now. So when do you get tracked now? Is it when you build the, yeah. the application? Google, Google knows when you run your build. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we, we wouldn't want to take that away from them, right? <laughs> as long as they can't shut it down, that's fine. <laughs> Google knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true, but oh, no. <laughs> on on Veet, real quick, in the integrations, I just pulled up an article written by Patak, who's one of the, the core developers on Veet at this point as well. And there's just so many integrations that Veet has that I didn't even remember what we were talking about it. So for example, there's plugins for Ruby. So if you've got Ruby on the back end, typically you're going to be using something like Webpacker to to bundle your JavaScript as the, as the default. So there's a way to replace that with Vite and you can just have a really nice tool for JavaScript on the front end. And same for Laravel. There's a plugin for Laravel that lets you just use Vite instead of its equivalent of Webpack. And there's also tools like Cypress or Storybook that are more development tools. You've either got your end-to-end -end testing or your, your component library or something, but it can all use Vite across the stack. You don't have to worry about these separate configurations. You don't have to worry about which environment am I in and trying to get the tools to talk to each other. It's just a streamlined way to use the same configuration and the same expect expectation of how the code works across your entire code base. Just so I don't misunderstand it, Ruby doesn't, can, Ruby doesn't get compiled to ESM, right? Correct. That's, okay. that's, that's just Ruby on Rails doing Ruby on Rails things. Okay. So Vite is not only compiling for or bundling for a front end, but it's also able to run servers, right? Is, is, that a, is my understanding correct now? Because Laravel is a backend technology as far as I understand it. This is, this is more an integration so that as you're working with Ruby or Laravel, okay. rather than having to compile your JavaScript via Webpack or via something else or not at all, you're you're integrating Vite into that experience. Okay, right. Which which means like if you try to download hello.scss, like if you or if you have your you know when you render your like HTML in Ruby, I'm assuming it it has to post process that with Vite. So it's some setup that runs on the server to make sure it has those assets. I'm assuming. Yep. Even in production. In production, it's using a bundle at that point. Okay. Okay. Now that that said, because you mentioned Vite on the server, there is Vite Node or Node Vite. I think it's Vite Node, and that's what Vtest uses in order to run Vite on a Node environment for running unit tests. But it's not really intended, at least for the time being, as a solution to write a server in. So nobody's going to be writing blog posts on how to set up Express using Vite Node. Are you sure about that? They might now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing I know about JavaScript developers is if it's possible to do it, they're gonna do it. <laughs> and that's fair. For better or worse. <laughs> sometimes sometimes it's better. Sometimes it is. 
All right. Well, Lindsay, do you know any good like resources for getting started? Like, do you have any recommendations for like things to watch or listen to or read if somebody wants to learn more about feet and get started? I think that's going to be a nuanced answer depending on what you're looking for. If you just want to get familiar with Veet, I would just go to the website, veetjs.dev, and kind of just read through, find what's interesting for you. Uh, there's the awesome Veet repository that has an amazing list of resources that are using Veet. Uh, a lot of it's going to be about Vue and React, but there's a little bit of Elm in there. And I think the third thing I would suggest is on YouTube, last year in October was VeetConf 2022, uh, where I gave a talk on the same thing about using Veet and Elm together. And I will admit that talk was directed more at people who aren't familiar with Elm than people who aren't familiar with Veet. But you can check that talk out as well as all of the other talks. It was a 24-hour conference. There was a lot of content in there about all the different frameworks, all of the different tooling, and how this ecosystem is really shaping up and coming together. So those would be the resources I would point at first. And then just kind of explore and see what feels good. Amazing. And uh, and where can people follow you? I am on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. I am also on Mastodon at Lindsay K. Wardell at Mastodon.social. Fabulous. All right. Well, Lindsay, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. This was great. And you're in. Until next time. Until next time. 